I want to come back to just a couple of the verses that John read for us earlier because I want you to think about them as we go to prayer. Again, in Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him, that's God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. There's a miracle in itself. To him, to Jesus Christ, be the glory in the church, and I would add in this church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Father, that's why we're here this morning. We're here to do our part to ensure that the name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, Lord, as we've already been reminded, to the nations, to those who are yet unreached, but also to a place like this where it's been proclaimed before, it's been announced before, but we announce it again because it's, it's too good and too wonderful to keep to ourselves, that there's a God in heaven who created us for his pleasure, for a relationship with him that that though our sins separated us from you, Father, that you sent Jesus Christ, the living sacrifice. Lord, he laid down his life. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He's triumphant. He reigns. And we're here to worship him. Father, we pray that as we've sung your praise, as we've sung the praise of Jesus Christ this morning, that, Lord, that it has given joy to your heart, to your Father's heart. Lord, we know as as those of us who are parents, those of us who are dads, how much it means when we hear our kids, Lord, uh, walking with you and and praising you. And Lord, even when they compliment us and we see good things in their lives, it gives us such joy. Father, we can only imagine how much more that's true of you, the Heavenly Father, to hear a group like this singing the praise of Jesus Christ. And Father, my prayer now is that having done that, having entered into your presence, Lord, hopefully having cleared the the slate in whatever way we need to, that we're ready now not to hear from me, not to hear from me, but to hear from you. So, Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would send your spirit to come and guide us in truth. Your word is truth, and there's nothing like it. We ask your spirit to come and guard us from error, Father, because we are easily deceived, we are easily led astray. Father, we ask by your spirit that you do whatever business needs to happen in all of our hearts right now to deliver us from apathy or pride or indifference or brokenheartedness or proudheartedness. Lord, that you just deal with it, remove it, so that for the next little while we can just listen to you. We pray that in it all that we would see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word, and may it be his praise and his name that we leave singing simply because we got to be together for a little while in his presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing that, let's go ahead and dismiss for Children's Church. Children's Church is for our boys and girls, the five-year-olds up through the second graders, and they can go spend some time in worship and in, the, and in, uh, in God's Word. As we're going to do the same thing here. As they're on their way out, grab your Bible. I hope you have one with you. If not, there's some on the back, or maybe there's someone nearby you that you can cheat off of. But I want you to grab your Bible, and I want you to turn in it to Esther chapter 4. You go in your Bible to Esther chapter 4. I'll tell you why we're doing that in just a minute, but first I want to say one more quick thing. Not related to the message, but related to the day, which is Father's Day, of course. We have mentioned that already. And that's simply that if you're a dad, or simply if you're just a man here today, you may not be a father, may not be a father yet, but we have a gift for you when you leave today. 
uh, just as our sort of token of, of uh, appreciation and encouragement for Father's Day, there's a book. There's be some folks at the back door when you leave today uh, with a book by Tony Dungy. Many of you know that name. Tony Dungy is a Super Bowl winning NFL football coach, uh, but he's much more than that. And he'll in, in his books. I've not read this one. I've read two of his other books. Uh, um, he is a, a deeply devoted man of God, and he's committed to raising up other godly men. Uh, this book is called Playbook for an Uncommon Life, and we want to give it to you because we want you to read it. So grab one on the way out, uh, take it home, make it yours. Happy Father's Day, and, and we'll just trust, we'll pray that, that God might use it in each of our lives just to keep pushing us forward, moving us toward maturity in Christ. With that said, we're in Esther chapter 4 this morning. Some of you may be... Uh, have been gone the last couple of weeks to say, what happened to Acts? Acts is coming back. It's just gone for a little while. If you're visiting with us, I need you to know as well, and I can look around and see that there are many of you visiting with us today. You are coming in, and, and we're just going to trust this is God's timing in the midst of a bit of family business. We are taking a number of weeks here. This is the third week in which we're just talking about kind of where God has us as a church right now and at a very interesting and unique opportunity that he's put in front of us. We are still committed in this time of our service to be in God's word. I trust you'll see that as we go forward. But we're using God's word then, uh, we think accurately, to apply it to the place that God has us as a church family right now. So I'm going to do my best to bring you up to speed. At the same time, we're going to press forward and trust that God will use what is said from his word in each of our hearts as he sees fit. But we're talking about, and we've done this every week, we're going to keep doing it every week, what we're talking about is, is, has to do with the building, but as the title of the series on the screen behind me says, and I want you to once again on the count of three say it with me, one, two, three, it's not about the building. We're talking about a building, but it's not about the building. And I trust you'll see that as we get into the scriptures this morning. But before we get into the story itself, and we're going to walk through it this morning just a little bit at a time, I want to begin by sharing with you to sort of set the scene for where we're headed, that my family, I don't know about your family, my family watches a lot of the Food Network. There are really two TV channels that are on a lot at our house. One is ESPN, and the other is the Food Network. And we watch a lot of it, probably not the, and that may be more confession than anything else, but it's true. And one of my favorite shows on the Food Network is called Restaurant Impossible. Anybody ever seen Restaurant Impossible? This is a great show. At least I, I think it's great. It's hosted, the premise, it's a reality show. It's hosted by a celebrity chef by the name of Robert Irvine. He is a large individual, big man. And what he does is he travels all over the United States, and in each episode he goes to a failing restaurant. And, and he goes there, and in the span of two days, and with a budget of $10,000, he tries to get that restaurant turned around back on its feet and back on the road to success. And, and it's an interesting premise. It's a neat show in some, some respects. But in every episode, about 20 minutes in, there's this pivotal conversation that takes place every time. And it almost, regardless of the particulars, almost always goes down the same way. You see, Robert comes in, and in the first 20 minutes, he samples their atrocious food. He slams their ghastly decor. He sort of finds out just how much debt and, and financial crisis they're in, hundreds of thousands, sometimes more than a million dollars, how they're only days, if not hours, from closing the door forever, and then they have this sort of showdown confrontation, and it always goes something like this. Robert asks the owners of the building, he says, why did you get into this business? And, and almost without fail, every time they say, well, we just always dreamed of owning a restaurant. We just always had a dream of owning a restaurant. He says, okay, you had a dream. Have you ever had any formal training as a chef? Have you ever been to culinary school? Almost always the answer is no. Said, so do you have any experience in running a small business? Almost always the answer is no. 
Uh, Do you have any experience in leading a team of people toward a common goal for everyone's good, leading employees? The answer is almost always no. Then he always, sort of always culminates at this point where he says, "And, and do you have a plan Do you have a business plan that you're following in order to achieve achieve and carry out this dream that you have? And once again, the answer is almost always no, to which Chef Irvine always inevitably responds, well, I can see why you're failing. You have no plan. You have a dream, but you don't have a plan. And I share that with you as we begin this morning, because that's the seed thought that I want to begin with. And then I want to sort of build everything that we're going to look at in God's Word from this morning. And that seed thought is this, and I want you to remember it. Write it down on your iPad, on your notes, on your arm, somewhere to remember it. And that theme, that that sort of seed thought is this. It's cool to have a dream, isn't it? Cool to have a dream. You may want to run a restaurant. You may want to win a Super Bowl. You may want to be successful in business. You may want to raise godly kids. It's cool to have a dream. But it is wise to have a plan. It's cool to have a dream. It's exciting to have a dream. But it is wise to have a plan, which, while not necessarily a guarantee of success, takes into account all the information and resources and people and variables that you can possibly sort of lay hands on to chart your way forward. It's cool to have a dream, but it's wise to have a plan. That is what this morning's sermon is all about. Because over the past couple of weeks, we've shared some things with you uh, about our present need, our current need as a church for more ministry space. The simple fact is this, we have more people, specifically children and youth, to minister to than we have square feet in which to minister to them. We see that as a problem. We see that as a challenge. We also see it as an opportunity. So two weeks ago, we began with a history lesson. You may recall that I and a couple of our elders shared with you just kind of where God has taken us over the the last, the first really 35 years of our church's experience. And how whenever we've had a need, God has always been faithful to provide. Often in very unusual ways. We walk through a history lesson of God's faithfulness. Last Sunday, we got into God's word. And I presented you as lovingly as I knew how with what I call reality check. Okay, here's where we really are right now. Here's the way things are. Here's the needs we have. Here it is in objective terms. And, and, and through this reality check, we've concluded that that building across the street, which going forward, I am now going to call the plaza building because I'm tired of saying the building across the street. It's just too many words. Someone called the plaza building because that's what it says on the sign. And we have come to the conclusion prayerfully that that is the best option available to us right now. That is the opportunity that God has put before us. And so what that means is is we've spent the last couple of weeks giving you the what. What's going on? What's happening? What's the need? What is perhaps the answer? What could be God's answer? So we've dealt with the what. This morning we begin talking about how. How this may happen, about what kind of game plan we believe it will take to make our dream a reality. Because again, it's cool to have a what? A dream, but it's wise to have a a plan. So we're going to talk this morning, begin talking about plans, and that is why we are in Esther chapter 4. Because the story here in Esther chapter 4, first of all, let me just give you a a real quick sort of summary background. It's a story that occurred in about 465 BC, about 450, 60 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. It happened in the land of Persia. This is a true story. Persia is essentially modern-day Iran, and the specific story we're going to look at happened in the capital city of Susa. 
This is in Persia, 465 BC. And, and in that city at that time, there was a, a population of Jewish exiles. Decades earlier, uh, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, excuse me, had been wiped out. The people had been taken captive into this land. At this point, many of them had gone back home to the promised land, but some remained in the Persian capital, in the city. For whatever reason, they were still there. So that's the setting. Now, we're beginning in chapter 4, so let me tell you what happened in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1, we are told that Persian king Ahasuerus, he's also known as Xerxes, and Xerxes is just a cooler name, so I'm going to call him Xerxes. King Xerxes got tired of his wife, and he got rid of her. God did away with her, that's chapter 1, and he begins to go on the hunt for a new wife. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, we're introduced to a character named Mordecai. Mordecai is the hero, the good guy in the story. He is one of these Jewish exiles. He lives in the capital city of Susa, and he just so happens to be raising his younger orphaned cousin by the name of Esther. He, what, we don't know what happened to her parents, we just know that Mordecai is raising her. And through a series of very interesting events, Mordecai actually maneuvers his cousin Esther into this role as Xerxes' new queen. So Esther, this Jewish exile, becomes queen of the kingdom of Persia, one of the most powerful kingdoms on the face of the earth at that time. That's chapter 2. Seems like things are going well. We come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we learn that Mordecai, the good guy of the story, finds himself on the outs with a guy by the name of Haman. Haman is the bad guy in the story. And, and, and for whatever reason, through, again, through a complex sequence of events, they find themselves at odds with each other. Haman finds himself hating Mordecai. Interesting thing about Haman is he was one of King Xerxes' chief advisors, one of the most powerful men in the land. And he decides in chapter 3, he so dislikes Mordecai, he's so irritated and, and, and frustrated by him that he's going to kill him. But his rage doesn't stop there. He says, not only am I going to kill Mordecai, I am going to wipe out the race of people to which he belongs, the Jews. I'm just going to eradicate Jews from the kingdom. He gets King Xerxes to issue an executive order to that effect. Interesting thing about laws in the ancient kingdom of Persia. There was something called the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which basically said this, once the law is passed, there's no repeal and replace. It's set. It will happen. They're going to annihilate the Jews. That brings us to Esther chapter 4. What we're going to do is we're going to read Esther chapter 4 together. We're going to read it in four parts. Through those four parts, I'm going to give you just sort of four key elements of the story. And then I'm going to see if I can tie this to where God has us today. This will be an unusual journey, just telling you that up front. But here we go. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. The first thing we're going to take note of in Esther chapter 4 is, as I've alluded to already, the fact that the Jews were facing a monumental crisis. The first of the four things I want you to see is that the Jews were in a season or a place of monumental crisis. Begin reading in verse 1. Follow along in your Bible to verse 9. Here's what God's Word says. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, this executive order to exterminate the Jews, and that he was, you know, in line first, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each and every province where the command and decree, this extermination decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's, Queen Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he didn't accept them. 
So then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend to her, and ordered him, Hathak, to go to Mordecai. He's about to become this sort of go-between emissary between the two of them to learn what, what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that, had been, that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and order her to go to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. So, verse 9, Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Now, all I want you to do, all we really need to do with the first nine verses this morning is just try to take a moment and absorb the gravity of this situation because this is a really big deal. This is a monumental crisis. Because what's happening here in the first nine verses is essentially an ancient equivalent of what Adolf Hitler tried to do in the 1940s. It's a holocaust. It's a genocide. It is a satanic attack to wipe out the covenant people of God. And as I said already, in those days, when an order like this was given, it couldn't be undone. It could not be repealed, and it could not be reversed. That's why everyone reacts so dramatically, sackcloth and ashes, torn clothes, wailing, writhing in anguish. It was a monumental crisis over which, in those last couple of verses we saw, Mordecai pleaded with Esther, do something. You're the queen. Do something. That leads to the second thing I want you to see in the story, that we need to see in the story, which is Mordecai assessing the situation, realizing what's happening, sends this plea to Esther, who responds, this is the second thing, with fearful concern. The second sort of movement moment in the story reveals to us Esther's fearful concern. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. Mordecai, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who's not summoned, he, the king, has but one law, that he, the one who came to the court unsummoned, be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I've not been summoned to come to the king these 30 days. So they related Esther's words back to Mordecai. In other words, what Esther says is this, Mordecai, cousin, Everybody knows you don't do that. That's not, this is not the way things work in our kingdom. I'm the queen, and even I, I'm not allowed to go before the king unsummoned. I'm not walking in there on the, on the shred, the faint of hope that today he happens to be in a good mood and he's going to allow me to leave as intact as I came. Mordecai, it's just not done. This is not the way the world works. Plus, Mordecai, you knew that, but what you may not know, Mordecai, is he hasn't even sent for me in 30 days. Maybe he's getting ready to do to me what he did to the last one. Just send me away. I can't do what you're asking me to do. It's just not done. It's not the way things work. So she sends, it says, Hathak, back to Mordecai, probably thinking that'll be the end of it. I don't know what's going to happen, but hey, it ain't on me. Not so fast. Third thing we need to see in the story. We've got a monumental crisis. Esther responds with fearful concern. Mordecai apparently is not the kind of guy who takes no for an answer. Because the third thing this story brings to our attention in verses 13 and 14, really the heart of the story, is that Mordecai responds with a stirring challenge. He speaks, responds to Esther with a deeply stirring challenge. Here it is. Look at your Bible. 
Then Mordecai, <clears throat> excuse me, told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Now, I don't know a lot about Mordecai. We don't know a lot about Mordecai, but I've determined one thing. This is a persuasive individual. First of all, he gets his younger cousin, a Jew, married to the king of the, of the entire nation, of the whole kingdom. That wasn't an easy task to do. But again, here, now we see that he's not the kind of guy to take no for an answer. Because what we just read in the span of three short sentences, look into your Bible, three sentences, Mordecai responds to Esther's concern with, his, by my count, a fourfold, airtight, irrefutable call to action. He says, Esther, not so fast. Here, very quickly, the four things he says to her. Verse 13, Esther, you, you may be forgetting something here. God's people are in this together. We are all in this thing together. Queen or peasant, this edict, this order applies to us all as Jews to be exterminated. Second thing he tells her, the beginning of verse 14, he says, and, and oh, by the way, Esther, and this is if you were here last Sunday, we talked about this principle. And you see this often in God's word. He also tells her at the beginning of verse 14, Esther, one way or another, God's going to take care of his people. One way or another, what God wants to happen, the preservation of his people, that is, in fact, going to happen. Here's the kicker, Esther. It's either going to happen through you or despite you, but it's going to get done. We are in this together. God's will will be done, or, or the preservation of the Jews, that is going to take place. Deliverance will arise for the Jews from somewhere else, he says. Third thing he tells her in the middle of verse 14, is he says, and Esther, oh, by the way, what you're afraid of, I, I examined the options, is actually the better of the two choices you have. Because what are you telling me you're afraid of? You're afraid that if you go to the king on, on the wrong day, at the wrong moment, and you catch him in the wrong mood, you're going down that you will not leave alive. Reasonable fear. Esther, if you don't go to the king, you will end up dead. There's no question or debate about that. You may not like the option in front of you, but it's the best one you've got. So what are you going to do? It's the better of the two options faced. And then in the end of verse 14, he sort of seals it. And, uh, and if you know the story of Esther, you know this is sort of the classic, the memorable line in the, in the book, the story of Esther, when he simply poses a rhetorical question and she's got to grapple with it and deal with it. He says, Esther, and isn't it possible, isn't it possible that you are in this position at this moment in time, not because you won The Bachelor, <laughs> think about it, <laughs> but because God wants you here and he's put you here for a reason. Isn't it possible you were at this place, at this point, at this moment in time because God wants to do something extraordinary through you for present and the benefit of future generations? This is not just a one moment in time. We're going to Isn't it possible that God is up to something here for future generations of his people? And apparently Esther gave in. Apparently, that question sealed the deal because the final thing I want you to see as we walk through the story, the fourth part of it before we get into what this has to do with us, is that as a result, Esther took a courageous step of faith. 
Esther's courageous step of faith, verses 15 through 17. The story, or the chapter ends this way. So Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go. Assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa, the capital city, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. In other words, Esther came to the same conclusion. Again, we talked about it last week. God's word is remarkably consistent. This is not the way things are normally done, but what was her conclusion? Doing nothing is not an option. Doing nothing, being people of inaction, of inactivity, of, uh, who are unresponsive, it's simply not an option. This isn't the way the world normally works, but something has to happen. So essentially, Esther concludes, let's give it a prayerful whirl and see what God does. How this works out. Say, well, what happened? Well, we're not going to read the rest of the story this morning. You go home and read it, but let me give you the summary version. Esther went to the king. He welcomed her into his presence. Ultimately, he heard and, and he honored her request through which the Jews were rescued, through which Mordecai was promoted to a position of royalty in the kingdom, and through which Haman ended up swinging from the gallows he built for Mordecai. In short, how did it end? God wins. Because God always wins. God wins. So well, that's nice and that's cool and that's encouraging, but what in the world does that have to do with buying a building? That's a good question. And the task before me and the Remaining time we have together this morning is to see if I can somehow make this very unusual connection in a way that makes sense to all of us. Because strange as it sounds, here's the thing. Strange as it sounds, what we just read here in the scriptures is the story. The story that through as, as a church our own, and we began this back in January, we've been doing it for months now, our own season of prayer and fasting. And particularly among our, our elders and, and our team that's sort of directing this process. This is the story through which God led, into which God led us and through which he gave us what we call a game plan or a, uh, what, what is our game plan going forward. Because again, it's cool to have a dream. That building's a cool dream. It's wise to have a plan. So what's our plan? Well, being the innovative, creative bunch that we are, we have titled it the Esther Plan. How about that? It's the Esther Plan. Let me see if I can walk you through it we'll see where it leads. Because there are a couple of things that stand out in Esther's story. Before I give you the plan itself, that I think are, are, are significant points of connection. First of all, one of the really key things about Esther's story is the fact that, that they are facing, they're grappling with a familiar problem that's just come back in new form. What's the familiar problem God's people have faced since the beginning? People hate them. Persecution, extermination. It's the same old problem. It's just wrapped up in, in new packaging. Same problem they've always had. Secondly, the second significant thing is that the power to solve the problem was out of their hands. The power to change it belonged to someone else. And I would submit that both things are true this morning of us. We are facing the same old problem. Gary told you this two weeks ago. We faced since Sunday number one, since Maranatha Bible Church began. We have more people, particularly children and young people, to minister to, then we have space in which to minister to them. Raise your hand if you know this is not a new problem, right? This is not a new problem for our church. We've faced this before. Second thing is we realize that the solution we see, the potential solution we see to it is beyond our control. 
We do not have the freedom, the ability to march across the street, go into that building and claim it for Jesus and start doing church there. We just don't have that option. That would be neat if we did, but we don't have it. The power belongs to someone else. Now, what do we know? We know God's already been working. Because what was the very first, two, very first two requests we laid out the second Sunday in January and asked you to pray about with us and fast every week? First of all, that the building, which is not for sale, would become available. Surprise, it now is. Second of all, that the owner of that building would be willing to sell it to us at a price we can afford. Half of that request has been answered. He's willing to sell it to us. We didn't even know him before. He's willing to deal with us. We even think he might like us to have the building based on what we know. What do we also know? Buildings cost money. And there's a great big sticker somewhere on that building that's got a great big number on it, a whole lot bigger than anything we have in the bank. And as I've thought about it, probably out of all the ventures we've ever done in the entire history of our church, we've, combined, we've never looked at a sticker like this before. It costs a lot of money. It's a great big challenge. Well, a few weeks back, in the midst of that, as, as that, that, that fasting and see, uh, prayer season here, the first few months of the year was unfolding, as elders, we met together. We just sat in a circle, and we did what we normally do. We just got together and said, what's God telling you? What do you hear? And as had been the case for several, the first several months, most of us were coming up zeros. <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> Not much? We, we don't know what he's saying. And we got almost all the way around the table saying, we really still don't know what God wants us to do about pursuing this building, if it's even what he desires. If so, how do we go about it? We were coming up zeros until one of our men, one of our elders, said this. He said, I don't know how this fits. He said, and I know this doesn't probably even make sense. He said, but on one of our recent fasting days, he said, I got into the book of Esther, and I got to the end of Esther chapter 4, and I can't get away from it. We said, what do you mean? We said, specifically, he said he was struck by verse 16. I want you to look at it again. Go, assemble all the Jews, the people of God who were found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Esther says, I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. Thus I will go to the king, which is not the way things are done, and if I perish, I perish. And then he asked us, what if we were to do the same sort of thing in our pursuit of this building? And I think there was a collective, huh? (laughs) What? How's that fit? And I think the reason for that was is because at the time, and probably to some degree still, we were just awash in questions. All kinds of questions. Uh, Is this the building for us? If so, where's the money going to come from? Where are we going to come up with it? To borrow or not to borrow? uh, How do we pursue it? Do we get professional help to guide us through this process? Because we've never been through it before. We're just question after question after question after question. And, And what made it all the more pressing, and we've talked a lot about this, is we realized the problem or the challenge we're grappling with as a church, it isn't two years down the road. It's yesterday. You saw the pictures last Sunday. It's now. Not a lot of time to to sit around and ponder and reflect. We need God to do something. So we filtered. What we did is, what was shared with us, we we began to filter those questions, in a sense, through Esther chapter 4. And we all agreed as a group, we would go home and pray about it for another week and fast about it again and come back and, and see what God says. Here's what we believe God has shown us. I don't necessarily expect you to understand it right away. I don't necessarily expect it to make complete sense. I'm just telling you, this is what he gave us, so this is where we're starting. This is the Esther plan. It's actually rather simple first. And I'll put just sort of the the high points on the screen behind me, or it'll be up there so you can see it. Number one, we have decided that if our dream, the plan, if if our dream's going to become a reality, the plan we're going to follow, we have determined, the elders have determined, 
that we are going to come up with an offer on that building by letting God work in all of our hearts the next three months. Not, the, not just the elders and the pastors and their wives, everybody. We are setting, Esther set aside three days. We don't know why she set aside three days. This is what she picked. We picked three months because we just think that this fits the, the timeline that, that would work. We set aside three months. Second, in, in conjunction with some upcoming teaching, like next week, <laughs> we're going to do on generous giving what it means to partner in the work of God in prayer, but also in giving and in offering and in finances. We're going to ask you to spend the next three months talking, praying, reflecting, thinking as a family. If you're married, as a couple, if you're family, all of you together, if you're a single person between you and the Lord and people you trust, and just say, God, what's my part in this? What is it? We're not going to tell you what your part is. We, we don't have the authority. We don't have the biblical le- leverage to do that. You have to figure it out. We're just going to give you principles that we're going to apply to ourselves. Then, at third, at the end of three months, we are aiming for mid-September. It's actually three months from yesterday. On Sunday morning, we're going to come together, and we are going to ask the church family, if you call this church your home, to make a commitment. We're not going to ask you necessarily to write a check, to bring money. We're just going to ask you to make a commitment. What can I do over the next three years? That's it. Three years. What can I do? What can we do over the next three years to partner in this venture to seize this opportunity. This is over and above whatever regular giving you do. What has God moved in our hearts to give? Now, all along in the midst of that, we're going to continue praying for the owner. We have prayed for the owner of that building since day one. If he doesn't know Christ, that he come to know Christ. If he does know Christ, that, that as we desire, he would be moving toward maturity in him. But we're going to begin praying something else, that our ability and his willingness will match. Our ability to give his heart, his willingness, and that he will accept what we come up with on that day, regardless of what the sticker or the listing happens to say. That whatever we come up with is what we'll be able to do. Then what we're going to do is going to take what the church commits, what all of us commit. Together, we're going to add it up. We're going to couple it with our land. We have land out on the highway. If it sells between now and then, we're going to take that money. If not, we'll try to use it in some other way. There's our offer. We're going to go to the owner of this building and say, this is what we can do. Here it is. Prayerfully, biblically, we believe in unity. Just like Esther went to the king. What have I said three or four times? That ain't the way things are normally done. This is not the way business is normally done. This is not the way churches normally do business. But We believe God's called us to do something different. And so we're going to try it. We're going to do it. We're going to follow him by faith. And we are going to trust Again, that in God's perfect plan, our ability and the owner's willingness will come together. And if he accepts, it will be a miracle. And we will give God all the glory for it. And it'll be cool and it'll be exciting. And we'll be able to once again say, God provides. See, what if he doesn't? Well, then we'll be disappointed, but we will give God all the glory. And say that in some other way, God will provide. We're going to give God the glory either way. That's the first thing we have to decide That's the first commitment everybody has to make. However this works out, whatever God asks, whatever the result is, I will glorify him. We will glorify him because it's his business. Is that unconventional? Yes, it is. Is that the way business is normally done? No, it is not. Is it crazy? Probably. But we've been called crazy before. I don't mind being crazy if it's biblical. Well, I mind it a little bit, but I don't But. Be honest, but we've been called crazy before, and what have we seen? We've seen God be faithful. 
faithful to his people, faithful to his word, not presumptuous, but as we followed him by faith. And you know what? If it makes us crazy, I think it puts us in good company. Because as I read through the Bible, I see a whole lot of servants of God, men and women who were asked to do equally ridiculous things, build an ark, march around a city with trumpets, step into the Jordan River. And what did God do each time when his people trusted him? He was faithful. I say it puts us in a legacy of faith. And we will trust God to be faithful. The bottom line, what am I saying? I'm saying that at, at the foundation, the root of it all, we believe this is a game plan that is rooted in faith, that it's going to stretch the faith of every single one of us, but that that's a good thing. And we're excited to see how God is going to move. We've seen God provide and be faithful before. We believe God will provide and be faithful again. And that's why the big idea of the message today is, once again, it's very simple. First of all, it's that it's not about the building. It's really not even about the money. Yeah, we're going to talk about money. It's not about the money. It is instead the big idea of the message this morning is that just as it was with Esther and Mordecai, it is about trusting God to provide for his people. It's about trusting that God provides for his people in his own time, in his own creative ways. And again, if this isn't the answer, we trust there's a plan B. And we trust that plan B is actually would be better than plan A. Father, I pray that you take this plan, Father, that we have very sought to very humbly, Father, and, and just willingly title the Esther plan. And Father, if it's of you, that you would bless it, and if it's not, that you would change our direction. Because the one that we, Lord, we've said it before, we said it last time, we, we had something like this come up. We do not want that building if it brings division or heartache into our church. Father, we don't want it if it puts us in a position where maybe we get what we want, but we miss out on something better. Father, that's hard. For, it's easy for us to stand and say, but if that becomes a reality, that's a challenge. Father, we want to, as, as Jesus has taught us to pray, just to simply say, Lord, your will be done. But we're at a point after many, many months and weeks of prayer and fasting where we think we know what you want us to do next. And we ask that in your grace, you'd enable us to take this next step. Father, I don't expect everyone to here this morning to absorb all this, to get it immediately. We're going to have to go home ourselves and pray and think and study your word. But I pray that slowly, gradually, however quickly maybe you want to, you would bring our hearts to be of one accord. That we would take the step of faith you ask us to take. And that we would trust that as always you will provide. Father, take the things that are of truth, that are right this morning, that have been spoken and seal them to our hearts. Take the things that are of the flesh and that are in error, just wash them away so that we truly leave this morning only seeing Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.